Welcome to Reinventing You, a podcast of the Reinvention Collaborative, a Boyer-inspired national consortium of leading research universities dedicated to strengthening, and if you will, reinventing undergraduate education. We're your hosts, Steve Dandino, Executive Director, and Liz Mock, Assistant Director, and we come to you from Colorado State University in Fort Collins, Colorado, the host of the Reinvention Collaborative. Today's guest is Eric Waldo, Executive Director of Michelle Obama's Reach Higher Initiative at the Common Application. Eric works to inspire every student in the U.S. to take charge of their future by completing a post-secondary education, whether at a professional training program, a community college, or a two-year or four-year college or university. His role cuts across policy, advocacy, and community engagement to further the goal that the U.S. once again lead the world in terms of college graduates. Before joining the White House, Waldo was Deputy Chief of Staff at the Department of Education, where he helped lead and manage the Department of Education through President Obama's historic investment of $100 billion in education funding via the Recovery Act. This work created important investments around system-level cradle-to-career changes for states, districts, schools, and communities. Waldo also helped manage the Department of Defense global K-12 school system as the co-chair for the Advisory Council for Dependence Education, which advises and oversees the Department of Defense schools. One of the first attorneys hired on the 2007-2008 Obama campaign, Waldo served as deputy staff counsel, providing legal guidance on a wide array of election protection and operational issues for the $750 million Obama enterprise. After serving as an attorney on the Obama-Biden presidential transition team, Waldo joined the Department of Education as special assistant to Secretary Duncan prior to becoming deputy chief of staff. Waldo earned a JD from the University of Chicago Law School, an MED from Harvard University, and an AB from Brown University. Hello, Eric. Hey, thank you guys so much. Steve and Liz, I'm really grateful to be part of your podcast. Thanks for having me on. Well, we certainly appreciate it, you know, and we're so excited to recently review, receive and review the Student's Guide to Your First Year of College, the Reach Hire's latest YouTube series featuring First Lady Michelle Obama and a fantastic lineup of contributors, including folks from the Reinvention Collaborative member, Howard University. So, wow, congratulations on that. Could we maybe begin with you telling us a little bit how you created that resource and what impact you're already seeing? Well, thank you so much for asking about it. We're really proud of the Student's Guide to Surviving Your First Year of College, a partnership between Reach Hire, YouTube, and now this. And I'll give you a little bit of background. Every year since we launched Reach Hire out of the Obama White House, we would bring in rising first-generation college students to the White House to talk about the tools that they would need to be successful when they get to college. As you likely know, you and your listeners, all too often first-generation college students show up to campuses and they don't necessarily feel ready. They may be surprised by things like using a syllabus, navigating the campus, and a host of issues that often really confront a first-generation college student. And so we realized that if we wanted to change the odds for students, we needed to better prepare them to be successful day one. Today, on average, if you're a first-generation bottom-income core student, you've got about a 9% 
six-year college graduation rate compared to about 73% if you're in the upper income quartile. So we began hosting students at the White House every summer through Reach Higher. We called it our Beating the Odds Summit. And the great news is, of course, Reach Higher has now moved into the nonprofit space. We're currently housed at the Common Application. And we've continued this trend, this history of hosting students every summer for our Beating the Odds Summit. And this year, we did so at Howard University. Mrs. Obama was with us. We had folks like Malcolm Jenkins, Wes Moore, and a host of first-generation students. So we had about 100 rising first-gen students from Philadelphia, Washington, D.C., and Baltimore really there to hear from Mrs. Obama, to hear from thought leaders, to hear from other first-generation students, and to hear from nonprofit partners like Opportunity Network on just how exactly to navigate and be successful on a college campus when we got there. And we are grateful that YouTube was able to join us, broadcast Mrs. Obama's conversation, and then actually take some of the lessons from our breakout sessions with, with our extraordinary partners and students and make sure that not just the 100 students who joined us in Washington, D.C. at Howard were able to learn those lessons, but actually that students around the country now can use it. So the exciting part about being able to launch this YouTube learning playlist, our student's guide, means that now countless students can learn those same lessons, right? We actually know today that Generation Z, they are digital natives. They're used to seeing things not just on, uh, not on TV, but actually on their digital devices, on places like YouTube. And we're excited to give them something to look at on YouTube that isn't just, you know, people, uh, you know, doing skateboarding tricks or, or watching, uh, you know, watching people unwrap presents, whatever the, you know, YouTubers are doing today. This is really an extraordinary lesson from someone who herself is a first generation college grad, and that's former First Lady Michelle Obama. So really excited that she's, you know, making sure students are taking some of the, her pearls of wisdom from, from being a first gen student, but also from the true professionals, uh, the nonprofit workers, the students themselves, who've been going through this, who've been successful and know what it takes to be successful on a college campus. Yeah, you know, Mrs. Obama and me are the same age, virtually just a month apart. And I was also a first generation student. And when I got that YouTube series, I watched it right away. I watched the whole thing. It's great to watch because it's exciting and interesting. You brought together so many important and interesting people, along with those terrific students who are part of the event. I just think our colleagues across higher education ought to make use of this because it just speaks to the issues you described and does so in a highly engaging way, even for old folks like me. <laughs> so I think we could really make great use of it. And I'm hoping we'll, those who are listening and those who uh, are part of our organization will really pay attention. I trust they will. So thank you to you and all your colleagues who helped make that available for free to everyone who's interested in student success. Thank you. Well, it's, it's our pleasure. And really, this is a great reminder that there's so much great content out there, and we want to do as much as we can to unlock that and to share these lessons. It shouldn't just be for people in the know. It should be for everyone. So it's exciting to try to demystify some of the things happening in college and really create lessons and best practices. And the exciting thing about doing it for free with YouTube and sharing these lessons also means that our reach is, is unlimited. I think there's already been hundreds of thousands of people who are watching this and are watching these lessons online. And so it gives me great hope. I've already heard, had some reports about Georgetown University using it for their first gen center. We know that this can be a tool for colleges, for high schools, for all sorts of people to explain that you don't have to be scared and there are other people going through this. And some of the lessons that we all know as, as higher ed college access and success professionals, you know, are, it, it's, it's there for the taking and we want to get, get as many people to see it as possible. Speaking of which, you know, from the point of view of a national leader who knows as much about transition to college as anyone, 
and uh, in this podcast, speaking primarily to an audience of leaders in undergraduate education at large research universities, public and private, what can the nation's research universities do more of and or what can they do differently and or what should they flat out initiate to improve students' ability to successfully matriculate and enjoy the full and rich benefits of higher education? You know, in a nutshell, if you were on the university side of the Reach Higher Initiative, what would yeah. be your most important moves? Well, that's a terrific question, and you're right. It, it, it's not just about the student willingness. It's actually about institutions. I always say we talk to students about being college ready, but we need to make sure colleges are student ready. And the reality is the modern college student is no longer what we think of in the past. It's not the sort of 18-year-old full-time student matriculating and living on campus. It's a very mixed bag of students who are part-time, who are commuting, who may be parents, who may, may be returning students, who are transfer students, who may be food insecure or first generation or have real challenges. And we need to do a much better job of adapting, changing, and meeting the needs of those students. Uh, they're just as talented. They have just as much drive and ambition, but we know we need to support them differently. And so what I would say is, number one, that takes leadership. And it's not something that we need to put off and say, well, I'm, I'm, I'm really proud of work that's happened at first-generation student centers. I know Brown University, for instance, has started one. It's everybody's job. And that starts at the top. That means that uh, the college president, the board, uh, you need to have some, some courage and understand that, that you need to change the way you do business and the way you're thinking of supporting students. And actually, the type of students you admit, the services you provide, and how you're going to support not just the access side of it, but the success side, right? I think that in general, higher ed needs to do much more to think about the full student experience and judging ourselves whether or not students are completing. The good news is I think there are some promising practices and some extraordinary leaders who are doing this work. Uh, I always like to talk about uh, people like Dan Porterfield, formerly the president of Franklin and Marshall University. When he was there, he took his student body from what was 11% palatable to about 33% palatable in three years. But he didn't just raise the numbers, he changed the support services on campuses. He worked with professors. He talked about what were they going to do to meaningfully meet the needs of students. When we talk to students, some of this is, you know, the fancy word in, in, in consulting or, or in the universe is, is design thinking. But design thinking just means listening to people and then changing your behavior. So, you know, for instance, we've known for years, right, that first generation students often don't have the money to go home over the holidays. So how can institutions leave dorms open or food halls open or make things different so that we're supporting our unique student population and not making them feel alienated, making them feel supported, not just academically, but social emotionally. And I think so much of the success of school is actually not just the academic side, but truly feeling safe, feeling accepted, having places to grow and fail and be successful. And I think we're seeing places like Franklin and Marshall, like Arizona State University, you know, we're seeing incredible work at places like University of Texas at Austin that are actually also using data-driven decision-making to better support students. I talk about the work that's happening over at Georgia State a lot, where they have an extraordinary support system set up for students using data to help figure out who are students who might be struggling and intervening in real time and not waiting till that end of the semester where they may be failing or having a real challenge that's going to put them in academic jeopardy or financial jeopardy. They have a chatbot. They have surround and support services. They're using data to change what they need to support those students academically, financially, social, emotionally, and otherwise. And they're seeing that change the outcomes, right? It's meaning that those students are completing, which is better for business. It's better for the colleges. 
and those students are having a better experience leaving with a meaningful degree and credential. And we're ultimately, which is what higher ed is supposed to do, changing the course of their lives, giving them more opportunity because of that higher ed. So we all have to do more and do better, but it's going to force us to think differently and to move faster and in a different way, which frankly, higher ed traditionally has has not been an innovator always no, in that way. No. <laughs> yeah, you're right about that. Amen to everything you just said. We're going to make you an honorary reinvention collaborative member. Eric, I'm ready. Everything you said was absolutely true. Except one thing, note, Liz, did you notice that Eric gave Brown a shout out? I did. Did you hear that? <laughs> Slip that in. <laughs> All right, Eric, based on your experience at senior levels of national policymaking, what do you think are the most promising and effective ways to encourage innovation in higher ed? So this is a great question, Liz, and I really appreciate it. You know, innovation is always the buzzword we use for all things. And in education in general, we've suffered from a lack of innovation. And many people, and I think there's one of these great uh, TED Talks out there, it talks about how, in many ways, education looks the same way it did 100 years ago. And so when we think about innovation and what we need to do, I think fundamentally, we have to think about how we're challenging the status quo. And there are a couple ways that I would think about it, and that's meaningful to me. Number one is, I think, we are seeing more and more of the research bearing out the fact that to be successful in life, it's not just about a one-time credentialing. It's actually about being a lifelong learner. And so I wonder, in terms of innovating in higher ed, what are we doing to actually create systems of badging, credentialing, and otherwise that are going to live on both in higher ed and beyond that are meaningfully showing that you're ready for a career or showing expertise. That's not about time and seat, but that's about true expertise, mastery. And how do we make that meaningful across a person's spectrum of their life? Because whether you're not, you've gone to fancy schools or you went to be a nurse and now you want to be a consultant or you went to be an engineer and now you want to be a teacher, people are constantly retraining changing careers, and they need to be lifelong learners. And so higher ed needs to adapt in a meaningful way that doesn't require someone to spend as much time as they have to. I like the example, so you may not know this based on my background, but when I was in college, I actually was pre-med. I took all the pre-med classes, including doing the MCAT. And I always remember, you know, I was not an exceptional organic chemistry student. It's a notoriously difficult class. Right. But I had a roommate, Jason, and he was, a, he was great. He was phenomenal at, at organic chemistry. Jason and I had to sit through that same class. And that class, you know, for, for those two semesters, we took the same class but had very different experiences. Maybe Jason could have taken a test and shown mastery of the year's worth of material in six months or eight months or three months. And maybe I actually needed more time to show mastery or a different support system to do so. We treated Jason and myself the same. And I think in general, what we want is actually to get to a credentialing position such that higher ed can show this person is great at this. It's meaningful for them and in the marketplace, and it shouldn't matter how much time it takes to get it. Divorcing, I think, the the mastery from the sort of time and seat also, I think, is going to be radical for how we think about the socioeconomic factors of higher ed, where right now we've seen over and over again that essentially upper income quartile families, people who already have a lot of money are much more likely to get it into elite institutions, and then to continue to sort of ride the wave of some of these systematic inequities to continue to advantage themselves. And I would argue that some of the ways we've set up higher education have continued to further those inequities. So one of the ways we could actually make education the great equalizer, as Horace Mann has said, is by truly saying 
how can we make education not just open, but truly a place where if we show that you're great, if we can help you get mastery, that credentialing will follow you and will be meaningful in the marketplace. I think everyone agrees with this idea. The fact of the matter is no one knows how to unlock it. We're still stuck in this place where people think you've got to have the credential to show the person that, that it's meaningful. And the reality is the business leaders are telling us we had to have degree inflation because now they say, okay, well, the college grads, I don't know if they're actually ready for the workplace. So now they need a master's or another professional certificate. So in some senses, you know, we need to raise our standards. We need to make lifelong learning a true option, and we need to find ways that we can agree on the standardization of what mastery looks like so that if you can prove it, no matter where you're from, where you went, or what you do, you can truly uh, demonstrate that mastery and, and propel yourself into success in the workforce. You know, and just to build on that, Eric, here at, we're, we're broadcasting from Colorado State University on our end. Just today, we had protests on campus because there was a, a blackface incident on our campus, unfortunately, a week ago. Students are understandably very upset, and they use their exercises, our president said, their First Amendment rights, and made that very evident today in a, in a wonderful show of protest and solidarity on behalf of those students who are affected, but also, you know, speaking to the values that are important in a democratic society where equity and respect for one another, regardless of differences, is core. And this equity challenge, as, as I think about it and others do, seems as important as the things you just described, which were also core to the kinds of transformations needed for these institutions, as you pointed out, that are a century old and haven't changed so much. Could you say maybe a little bit more about this equity challenge, where you think higher ed needs to make structural and cultural changes in that respect as well? Sure. And thank you for asking that question. You know, it's interesting. I would say in higher ed and around the country, we saw probably more conversation than I'd ever seen about college access and college success because of the Varsity Blues scandal, the scandal around some Hollywood parents and, and a few other well-to-do folks essentially bribing their way to get their students, their, their children into some elite institutions. And suddenly that brought a, a big deal of attention to higher ed. And, and it's interesting because there, that was such a sensational story that it got a lot of attention. But to me, what we need to be talking about isn't that story. That's not what I find. That's a terrible, that was a terrible situation. But what is more scandalous to me is the general inequity that we all seem to stand for on a daily basis. I, I started this podcast talking about the numbers, which again are, are almost too dispiriting to really process. Again, if you're in the bottom income quartile, you have about a 9% six-year college graduation rate. If you're in the upper income quartile, you have a 73% college graduation rate in six years. So we're telling people right now, it's not about your talent, it's about your you know, your socioeconomic status. If your parents were rich, you're likely going to be able to get a college degree and be a successful upper middle class person. And if you're poor, we're going to make it really hard or it's going to be really hard for you to get a college degree. The reality is that today in the 21st century economy, everybody needs some form of a post-secondary education, a two-year degree, a four-year degree, a community college, a certificate, a credential. So if we're not making that possible for everyone, we are condemning them to poverty and social failure. And so... To yep. me, I mean, the idea that somehow everyone's just like, oh, yeah, isn't that crazy that lower income students aren't getting to graduate from college? Well, we can take, uh, we, we can show leadership. We can change that. And I think 
I talk a lot about uh, courage. You know, I was very fortunate to work for people like Arnie Duncan, Barack Obama, uh, former First Lady Michelle Obama. And, you know, it takes a lot of courage to challenge the status quo. And I think that right now in higher ed, all too often the status quo, people said, well, I guess that's just the way it is. Uh, you may have seen over the weekend, and I'm not sure when this podcast will air, but uh, Paul Tuff, who, who's a great writer and thinker in education, he has a new book on higher education. And, and as part of that book, he wrote an op-ed in the New York Times and, and sort of detailing the work of uh, Dean of Admissions at, I think, University of Hartford. And again, just sort of detailing some of the realities of how admissions deans are, are making decisions about who to let in. So even if they have equity on their mind, what are the business realities mm -hmm. in higher ed that are forcing or that are uh, leading to incentives to continue to admit wealthy people who can pay full price versus lower income promising students you know, who need a full ride? And I think uh, you're seeing this in the presidential conversation as well, or the concern about everyone really understands that higher ed is necessary to be successful. But with its rising price, with the fear of debt, and with this, again, perhaps more honest conversation of how unfair it currently is in terms of outcomes and in terms of access, people are upset. And you, you, know, you talk about the unrest on campus, we're seeing that throughout our society right now where people feel like they don't trust institutions. And so we as adults, we as leaders, our job is to really change that status quo, to have courage. And that means ultimately saying, we're going to do what's best for students. And I would argue, if we put on that mindset, if we think about how are we supporting students, how are we helping those with the most potential, but perhaps the least means, that's going to be good, not just for those students, but for all of society, and yes, for those institutions as well. So I'm ultimately a Pollyanna, but we have to be honest about where we are right now. You know, Eric, I think you have just addressed a question I was going to pose, but I don't think I need to, because what I hear you saying is that Higher education, like American society as a whole, is very paradoxical. You know, on the one hand, we're the best higher education system in the world. On the other hand, we know rife with inequalities and equities, forms of discrimination kind of baked in that we have to address. What you're saying is the way to address them most effectively is to have students be our lodestar. What's best for them will guide us properly through those paradoxes, help us resolve these deep-seated conflicts. Is, is that a fair way of summarizing briefly your basic pact here? Yeah, I think a couple of things. I, I'd agree. Number one, this is not a mystery to us that education is necessary and critical. We all need to be lifelong learners and we need some post-secondary education to be successful. Uh, to the people, <laughs> uh, people who've listened to me talk on my podcast, on this podcast, or out in the world know that I get a, I li I get a little upset when <laughs> I read the op-ed or I, I hear the person saying, I don't know, you know, like college isn't for everybody. College isn't worth it. And what upsets me about that is they don't mean that for their kids. When they say that, they mean it's for somebody else's kids. And when, when they say that, it tends to mean those other people's kids yeah. tend to be poor uh, and they, they tend to be brown or black. And so, you know, my other sort of inverse takeaway from the college bribery scandal was, man, if college ain't worth it, why are these already advantaged rich people doing so much to continue to cheat to get into school? Like, it must be worth something. So, I mean, we do know college is worth it. We can look at the longitudinal data. Raj Chetty has done terrific work at Columbia and Stanford and Harvard looking at the long-term economic impact of getting an education or having a great teacher. But the fact of the matter, you, you talked about how we compare to other countries. 
the reality is also now we are actually starting to fall behind on a few levels. Number one, we're no longer the most highly educated country in the world. About a generation ago, the United States led the world in the proportion of young people with a college degree. That was partly financed by things like the GI Bill and other things that helped really post-World War II propel the United States to sort of dominance in the 20th century economy. Now we're about ranked, I think, under the latest OECD report, we're about 13th among industrialized nations. So other countries are out-educating us. That's number one. Number two, I'm pretty sure it's, it's Raj Shetty's studies that have shown that actually in terms of using education as an economic engine or, or sort of as an engine of upending inequality, a ladder of opportunity, unfortunately, we see in other countries where you're born in terms of socioeconomic status is less determined of where you can end up, i.e. education in those other countries is a, is a greater equalizer. In the United States right now, we are losing ground in other countries about using education to actually help people jump up the economic ladder all too often now, whether it's the K-12 system or higher ed, people are stuck in a broken cycle. And so again, as leaders, as adults, you know, what are we doing to make sure that actually, given that we know education is necessary, given that we know we need to be life learners, how are we making that opportunity accessible to everybody? And again, some promising work. We've seen the College Promise Movement, where now I think it's over 30 states around the country have some form of a free community college program. Uh, you've seen proposals more recently around the country where states moving even further around making college debt-free or, or tuition-free for some four-year options in certain states. I think New Mexico announced a plan this week. I cannot confess to know the full details. Again, if we know that being a lifelong learner and having a post-secondary education is critical to life success, how can we not provide that? How is that truly not a right to all of us as citizens? Well, Eric, thank you so much for taking the time to address our Reinventing You audience and the Reinvention Collaborative members. I think we've talked about some really important topics. Do you have any last thoughts you want to share before we go? Yeah. So first of all, I just want to say, I think we are at this really exciting crossroads in education where thinking about the value of education, thinking about the role it plays in society, and thinking about you know, how do we transform it for an age that now is, in many ways, we have unlocked opportunity in so many other places that democratized it, right? We see how technological innovations like YouTube have, in many ways, undone or, or democratized uh, who gets to be on TV or who gets to be a star? You know, we've seen the Silicon Valley economy change the way we think of startups. We've had disruptions in places like Uber and taxis and deliveries. And yet education is still that thing that has not truly been disrupted. And I think given the importance it plays in equity, given the opportunity we have to use education truly as a tool to not just continue to keep people the status quo in terms of, you know, let people stay where they are or continue to reinforce systematic inequalities, I think we need to challenge ourselves to figure out how are we truly going to disrupt higher education in a meaningful way that propels student success as its most meaningful goal. And if that is what we want to do, I'm positive that our whole society, country, and world will benefit the more educated people are and the more that we're spreading that opportunity uh, far and wide. I mentioned this earlier. It's, it's from a quote from Horace Mann. Uh, he was the first secretary of education in Massachusetts. He's sort of off-quoted and credited with creating the common school movement. And one of my favorite quotes by him is he does say that education then beyond all other devices of men is the great balance wheel. 
of the social machinery. It prevents being poor. That's his quote. Mm-hmm. And we knew that in the mid 1800s. It's just as true today. And so it's less about do we know how to cure some of society's problems, but more about do we have the courage to give the budget and the money and the resources to make it possible for everyone. So I think, you know, thanks to leaders like you at Colorado State, you know, people uh, in your reinventing you community and others, I think that if we put our shoulders to the wheel, we can get there. Have I said amen yet today? Because amen, (laughs) that is, we're with you, Eric. Thank you. Well, on behalf of our members and listeners, Steve and I would like to thank Eric Waldo, Executive Director of the Reach Hire Initiative for chatting with us today. We highly recommend that listeners check out Reach Hire's latest YouTube series, super valuable resource for any college or university. And thanks to you for listening to Reinventing You, a podcast of the Reinvention Collaborative. Reinventing You is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about the Reinvention Collaborative, check us out at reinventioncollaborative, all one word, dot org. RC members can listen to an extended version of this interview at the members-only section of this site. Mm-hmm.